Have you sort of noticed that the sort of sentiment toward nuclear energy is changing? You know, it's actually scary to me. For the first time in my life, I seem to be politically correct. You know, governments can't educate the kids. They can't deliver the mail. Uh, all they can do is steal and wreck things. So that's what they just to do. Those predictions about what the world would look like in 2000 that you heard back in 1970, they sound pretty similar to some of the extrapolations people make today about what the world will look like in 2040, except now... Eerily, eerily similar. It's, it's all about yeah. the EV revolution. Yep, eerily similar. Government big thinkers are always wrong. There are very few absolutes in life, but one is that the people who spout narrative for an absolute living, particularly if they don't invest in their own narrative, are invariably wrong. My slogan has been, uh, if you're not a contrarian, you're going to be a victim. Right, hey, g'day, buddy boarders. Welcome to Thursday, 20th of July, and tell you what, we have got something bloody special. We've got out of bed early to conform with the North American time zones, and, mate, I would have got out of bed two, two hours earlier for this fellow, lads. Rick Rule, an absolute bloody legend of the mining industry. Welcome to for your inaugural Money of Mine interview, mate. Uh, a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. I I, I enjoy these processes. Oh, you, you've been on a few. Um, of you were the we definitely uh couldn't couldn't leave you out of the show. We see your head popping up everywhere, but um, obviously not on the best one yet. <laughs> You've got more of a cult following than we do, mate. So pleasure to pleasure to um pleasure to meet, and we're pretty excited about the conversation we're going to have. We're going to cover some good territory, I reckon. Let's start from the top, Rick. You've obviously been in the in the natural resources industry for, for quite a while. Why do you sort of keep coming back? What's so exciting about it for you? Well, for one thing, I know how to do it. Uh, I uh, cut my teeth in resources, I'm embarrassed to say, long before any of you were born. Uh, and <laughs> I, I made all the mistakes I had to make in my first 30 years of life. Uh, and having made plenty of them, I decided not to go into some other industry where I'd have to make them all uh, but rather, I've stayed in resources. I've always been fascinated with the treasure hunt. Uh, I've always enjoyed the people who I've known in extractive industries, both mining and oil and gas. And as I've been in the industry longer, I've learned how to avoid some of the mistakes I made <laughs> earlier on. I think, too, that perhaps I have the right psychological makeup for this. Uh, I might not have been at your age, but I'm now an instinctive contrarian. And I believe in capital-intensive businesses and cyclical businesses. Uh, my slogan has been, uh, if you're not a contrarian, you're going to be a victim. Uh, feeling, feeling no further need for victimhood, uh, I've become a confirmed contrarian. I am also risk-oriented. I understand that losses are part of the price of success. In exploration in particular, uh, loss is the expectation. You make more bad decisions than you make good decisions. If you ecological makeup or the financial wherewithal to afford the process of making mistakes, <laughs> you know, you should go to work for the post office or something like that. Um, <laughs> So I do extractive industries. I'm willing to accept loss because of the disproportionate nature nature of my gains. You know, if you're relatively good at it, the money that you make on your winning investments more than amortizes the money you lose on the losing investments. And I've learned, too, that I need to invest for the five to seven year time frame and that I need to invest countercyclically. Uh, I've learned instinctively, which I hope your younger viewers learn, that bear markets, uh, were they in physical goods, would be called sales. And sales are good. So is that sort of contrarianism, being able to sort of see out to the, the medium sort of time horizon and tolerate a bit of risk? Do you sort of look at them as those the three main characteristics of being a, a good investor in the resource space? And did you did you have it from the get go, Rick, or did it? I, I sure guess didn't. did it evolve over time? There's a lot of hot air no, and fluff and temptation out there. It definitely evolved over time. Oh, <laughs> at the risk of boring your audience with tales of long ago, 
Uh, you know, understanding that I'm older than some of the rock packages you guys explore. <laughs> mate, we, we um, weren't even a sparkle in our father's eye while, when you were, uh, started investing, mate, so we're all ease. Yeah, your your fathers were probably unborn too. <laughs> <laughs> probably. So at any rate, I, you know, I came into the business in 1970 uh, at the beginning of the damnedest bull market that extractive industries have ever seen. You know, the gold price went from 35 US dollars to 850. Natural gas price went from 30 cents a thousand to 15 bucks. The silver price went from a buck and a half to 50. I mean, it was wild. And like many hubris ridden young men, uh, I confused a bull market with brains. I thought I was making money because I was good. And when the decade was over and the price commodity prices collapsed, I found out just how good I was. Say, not very. Uh, so I went from being like every young man, dead broke at 17, to being really relatively rich. Uh, in fact, absolutely rich when I was 27 or yeah, 26, 27, uh, to having a sub-zero net worth when I was 29. So I, I got to I got to experience uh, contrarianism firsthand. Uh, in the middle of the, de the decade of the 70s, all the big thinkers of the world, you know, the big banks and governments and everything, and you know, they all said that the trend in motion was inexorable. They were Malthusian. And I remember reading that oil was going to be 200 bucks a barrel in the year 2000, and 30 or 40 million people a, a year were going to be starving to death because of, you know, uh, resource overutilization, all that kind of stuff. I and the big thinkers all forgot that markets worked <laughs> and that the cure for high prices is always high prices and the cures for low prices is always low prices. <laughs> and so the contrarian that you hear in me now was shaped by going from broke to rich to broke. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't able to learn it in a book uh, or observe it from someone older or wiser Die. Those predictions about what the world would look like in 2000 that you heard back in 1970, they sound pretty similar to some of the extrapolations people make today about what the world will look like in 2040, except now- Eerily, eerily similar. It's, it's all about yeah. the EV revolution. Yep, eerily similar. Uh, I've learned to my chagrin that the big thinkers, at least the government big thinkers, are always wrong. Uh, there are very few absolutes in life. But one is that the people who spout narrative for an absolute living, particularly if they don't invest in their own narrative, are invariably wrong. And what did you? Can you draw any parallels to this this EV craze at the moment? Especially all the God. If anyone's got an outcropping pegmatite, doesn't even have to have spodumene at the moment. They're they're going up <laughs> just out of speculation. Can what parallels can you draw to like God? You, you've been through every bloody financial crisis known to man. Like two thousand seven dot com bubble, eighty seven crash. Can you draw any parallels to what we're seeing now with this and those booms? Because we haven't got to sure. the point where it shits itself yet. Well, as you say, other than the Crusades, I saw them all. Um, I guess the, the closest boom one could talk about in, in comparison with lithium uh, would be the uranium craze in the sort of 1998 to 2007 timeframe. They're eerily similar. Uh, I'll tell you the uranium story and you can extrapolate or I'll take you through the lithium story afterwards if you want. At the beginning of the uranium bull market, Uranium had been in a bear market for 20 years. I mean, it, it was one for the record books, going all the way back to Three Mile Island and Chernobyl. Uh, and, and what that meant was that there wasn't a lot of investment interest in uranium. Uh, it, it, it was better than that, actually. Uh, as a contrarian, you look for stuff that bores people. But if you really want to play the contrarian game, you look for stuff that people hate. And that was uranium. When I was talking about uranium, uh, it isn't just that my audience fell asleep, but some members of the audience would accuse me of being a despicable human being and seeking to profit off misery in Three Mile Island. So I knew as a contrarian, I was in the right place. Now, the stuff, by stuff, I mean uranium, was at that point in time providing about 20% of the developed world's baseline power, which is to say we couldn't do without it. We just couldn't do without it. 
and, and the material was selling for about 10 US dollars a pound, while the fully loaded cost of production, that isn't just AISC, it includes cost of capital, cost of tax, cost of unsuccessful efforts, prior year write downs, was about 30 bucks a pound. So the mining industry typically is making the stuff for 30, trying to sell it for 10, and of course, trying to make it up on volume. <laughs> it was not a real good business, you know. Uh, but when you looked at that and, and you understood the dynamics of the fact that the uranium market was in liquidation, but that the material was essential for the future of humankind, you came to understand that within five or six years, either the price had to go up or the lights would go out. Those were your two choices. So it was pretty clear that if you could stomach the weight, the uncertainty as to when this blessed event might occur, that you were asking yourself in investment terms a question where the answer began with when, not if. You had to have the stuff, and the prices it was selling for weren't sufficient enough to make sure that you would have it. At the beginning of the boom, there were five junior uranium companies uh, that had survived the 20-year bear market. There were probably 12 or 15 teams in the world that were capable of running a uranium junior. So the probability that your uranium junior had a good team was at its simplest, dividing the number of teams, 15, number of aspirants, five. Pretty high probability that your junior had decent. Fast forward seven or eight years, uranium, which I said had to go the 30, didn't. It went to 140, which meant that the price didn't have to go up anymore. And if the price of something doesn't have to go up, it probably comes down. Meanwhile, the number of companies looking for uranium had grown from five to 500, which meant that the probability that your company had a good management team was again a function of dividing the number of teams, 15, by the number of aspirants, 500, <laughs> which is decidedly lousy math. Uh, one thing you learn in resources is that markets always work. They're very, very, very messy. At $145 a pound, uh, people were some, uh, more judicious with their use of uranium, and supply uh, came to the fore. I, I won't say out of nowhere. It came out of Kazakhstan. <laughs> Kazakhstan hadn't really had a uranium industry. Got eight or ten dollars a pound, and it <laughs> at a hundred dollars a pound began to supply forty percent of the world's supply of yellow cake. Uh, thanks partly to you guys with your three mine policy refusing to produce what you had, but I'll leave that aside. <laughs> but yeah, it's right. uh, Olympic Dam only produce it because I have to. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. It's yeah, free to them. Uh, and uh, so I, I think that the parallels to the lithium business are, are probably accurate. When I was growing up in the business. Lithium was regarded as waste. It was something that fouled equipment down a hole in the oil and gas business or in the geothermal business. We called it scale, not lithium. And it was used uh, <laughs> principally to alter the mood, uh, often junior mining stock investors. Uh, this is pre the lithium battery. And when lithium came to have uh, other applications, it isn't even that seven years ago, the world was short of geologic resources of lithium. It's that we hadn't developed processing capacities fast enough to accommodate the increase in demand. Uh, and eerily similar, seven or eight years ago, if you talked about lithium uh, at a mining convention, uh, most of the investors couldn't spell it. Uh, you <laughs> definitely know, definitely along, wouldn't have been able to spell spodumene then. Yeah, right, right, right. Uh, or if they did, they'd spell it W-A-S-T-E. <laughs> and um, then, you know, all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, but over time, uh, demand for lithium in terms pr particularly of battery applications came to the fore. And again, we were not seven years ago and we're not now short uh, of either soluble or hard rock uh, lithium. We were and continue to be bottlenecked in terms of processing capacity. The price in those days had to go up because you had to spend a whole bunch of money on new processing capacity, and you allocated material in a market where the material was insufficient for the market. The price of lithium went up fourfold. 
I wonder, and I don't know the answer, uh, seven or eight years ago, how many teams worldwide were capable of uh, operating a lithium junior? I don't suspect it was more than 30. Uh, five years ago, or pardon me, seven or eight years ago, there were probably 15 or 20 uh, companies purportedly looking for lithium. Uh, I understand now that there are 200 worldwide. So the arithmetic around the availability of qualified people is eerily similar <laughs> to what it was in the uranium business. And I am almost certain that uh, with the money available to look for lithium and the many forms that lithium takes, uh, that we will solve the supply problem uh, and coincidentally, simultaneously solve the processing problem. Uh, in which case there won't be a problem, except for in the accounts of people who thought that having risen by 400%, lithium could rise in price by another 400%. I hope uh, that helps. That, uh, that 200 number you about the lithium, that's a, it changes week to week over here. There's a lot of identity crisis we see in the Perth, <laughs> uh, the Australian mining industry. There's uh, gold producers that uh, one week later, they're now a lithium explorer and uh, rare earths turn into lithium mines. Uh, so she's a pretty volatile number of participants in this lithium exploration industry. I'm sure you're pretty uh, – <laughs> I'm sure you have a good laugh of it over there in North America. Oh, that happens in Canada too, except for they take an 18-month vacation as a pot company. They try to smoke away their mining failures. Oh, uh, so. Nothing like legalizing it. Beautiful. Rick, we sort of um, went into uranium a bit there, so I'm keen to go back onto it. Have you sort of noticed there's like a bunch of anecdotes coming across the world that the sort of sentiment toward nuclear energy is changing? How do you sort of – you that. You know, it's actually scary to me. For the first time in my life, I seem to be politically correct. <laughs> uh, That's a safe place you to know, be. I, I should have noticed in the last bull market, you know, at the beginning of the bull market, well, in the bear market, I get on the podium and I talk about uranium. And as I say, people were disgusted. They'd say, you know, you're trying to profit from human misery. You're a warmonger. Uh, you know, you're trying to kill the salamanders and pollute the ocean, all that kind of stuff. And six or seven years later, those same people who hated me were asking me for stock tips. <laughs> so uh, I guess life marches on. You should have given them a uh, shit one to shut up uh, and get them back. I'm an old man. You know, I, I got to be peaceful with everybody. Give them, give uh, them cold, cold stock tips then. <laughs> and I'll tell, you, I'll, I'll tell you something else. Uh, it's not uh, unpleasant uh, after 70 years on earth to have people agree with you on occasion. Uh, I, I think, too. And I, I'm not joking about this. I think that the facts around nuclear power are beginning to come out. Um, I note, uh, and I think that some of the former opponents to nuclear power have noted, in all seriousness, that there are a billion people on Earth with no access to primary electricity. None. There are another two billion people on Earth who experience various forms of energy poverty either uh, unreliable or unaffordable electricity. Uh, and those of us in the developed world who can afford electricity seem to have an inexhaustible appetite for it. <laughs> but in particular, the poor people want to live like we do. Uh, and that's going to require a lot more electricity, all forms of electricity. Solar, I'm good with it, right? Provided you're not in Germany where the sun doesn't shine. Uh, wind, I I'm good with it. Hydro, geothermal. Oil and gas, yep, coal, of course, uh, and nuclear. The beauty of nuclear is that as baseload power, as reliable, sustainable power, uh, it ranks very, very highly, but it has the added advantage of not generating any carbon whatsoever. So as an example, the former head of Greenpeace, a Canadian environmental organization that's now spread worldwide, is wholly pro-nuclear. Uh, he says that the only way that we can meet our obligation to poor people with regards to raising their material standard of living while keeping the planet from cooking, his words, not mine, uh, is nuclear. Um, and while 40 years ago I would have regarded him as a sort of a strange compatriot or fellow, uh, I'd rather he were on my side than opposed to me. I think it's very notable, too that the country with the most recent exposure to the downsides of nuclear power, Japan, 
uh, has gone from having uh, about 70% of the electorate opposed to the restart of the Japanese nuclear fleet to a circumstance now where 62 or, three, or 63% are in favor of the re restart of the Japanese nuclear fleet. And what do you think this actually means for uranium? I think all the uranium bulls out there would be begging us to ask the question, does a sort of renaissance in nuclear power actually mean there's going to, you know, be bullish for the uranium price long term? And probably what? And what's your confidence level in this as an investment case at the moment? Because you've been through many. Is this, um, I guess, the most confident you've been that this is going to be the one? For uranium? I'm I, I'm very confident. Now, V1, I don't think that the price with the ability that the Kazakhs have to ramp up their production, uh, I don't think that the uranium price eclipses the old uranium. In other words, I'm not I'm not saying that the stuff is going to go from 55 US dollars a pound to 145 dollars US a pound. What I'm saying is the following: the incentive price for existing producers is at least 60 US dollars a pound. Because the total cost that the industry faces is not the same as the cost that you and I repeat, the C cost. Uh, the total cost includes things like tax. Uh, it includes the cost of capital. The incentive price for maintaining current production worldwide is about 60 US dollars a pound. So once again, the industry is making the crap for uh, $60 a pound. And they're selling it for 55. They're not losing as much. They're losing $5 a pound trying to make it up on, on volume again. Uh, but the truth is that we have a big deficit now. Uh, we are using a lot more than we're mining. And it is estimated by the International Energy Agency, not that they've ever been right before, but uh, they publish on this stuff. Uh, it is estimated that the incentive for new uranium production is about $75 US per pound. I believe that the price of uranium will go, must go to a price that generates a reasonable return on capital employed uh, for the median producer, which is between $75 and $80 a pound, assuming that the US dollar doesn't decline, that the gap between uh, real dollars and nominal dollars, which is to say that the decline in purchasing power of the US dollar doesn't accelerate in the future. I think the second thing that we need to understand around the Iranian business is that three or four years ago, almost all of the transactions in the Iranian business were taking place in the spot market, which is to say that the spot price was the real price. Uh, in terms of new volumes in the uranium market now, between 60 and 70% are taking place in the term market. And the term market's very opaque. You can't see what the price is, except that it's higher. Uh, and in addition to being higher, term prices uh, build in revenue security for the producer. Uh, because if you're selling 100% of your, pro your product at the spot, you don't know what you're going to sell it for. But the terms have minimum and maximum price brackets. So you know, as an example, that if you if you sign a, a five-year term market uh, with it being indexed to spot, but as an example, at a minimum of 60 with a maximum of 65 or, or 70 bracketed, the miner knows that for five years, uh, his or her revenue projections are based on reality rather than based on volatility. And that certainty around the revenue line does wonders for investors' confidence <laughs> uh, in the nascent uranium producers or in the developers that have the ability to rock it, to lock in revenue certainty. Now, Rick, Sorry uh, for that long-winded answer, but uh, uh, you all know, you actually that's, all, that's, all now, got, that's all I've got you here for, mate. That saves us talking, mate. You, you, as you said, you're in your seventies now. You could have, after such a successful career, you could have easily just parked up, run a run an efficient charter, and uh, semi-retired. But uh, uranium's obviously one of the things that keeps getting you out of bed each day. What else excites you, and what else keeps you going these days, Rick? Or you just love the whole well, bloody thing? Yeah, I do love the whole bloody thing, to be honest with you. I mean, a couple of good things have happened. I sort of retired, although I, I failed that dismally. Uh, <laughs> well, the missus made you go back do, to work, did she? Well, I I resigned any regulated capacity. Uh, so it used to be that I was uh, subject to the whims 
of a whole bunch of alphabet soup agencies in the U.S. Uh, and that took a lot off my mind, to be honest with you. And I also dropped off the Sprott board uh, while I enjoyed my time on the board of directors. Uh, towards the end, uh, I began to spell board B-O-R-E-D. Uh, and excusing myself from that administrative burden prolonged, literally prolonged my working career. The third thing is that I celebrated retirement by um, being involved in starting <laughs> a new bank, uh, which is to say I really seriously flunked retirement. Uh, starting a bank is not uh, a way to increase your idle hours. But I, I, I do it because I can't help it. Uh, I really, really, really like it. I'm one of those people who uh, I, I like the process of helping people build businesses. I like identifying uh, structural mispricing in markets. I, I like identifying investment opportunities. And I like doing it on more than just an intellectual basis. <laughs> I, I like to win if I'm right. And I like to help other people win if I'm right. Just to pick up on that thread, Rick, identifying structural mispricing. In what sector of resources and commodity investing right now are you seeing the most mispriced markets, either to the upside oh, the, or the downside? I would say the ugliest is in the coal market. Yeah. It's the most hated, you know, the right, to, to pick up on your words again. The, yeah, the big thinkers of the world, you know, uh, don't like coal. But for people in poor countries, uh, their choices are coal, 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 and coal. The biggest year in recorded history for coal demand was 2022, Greta notwithstanding. Uh, and 2023 will eclipse 2022. Glencore last year bought uh, a minority interest in a mine that they operated with a 30-year mine life. And they paid one and a half times cash flow for a 30-year mine life that is in the best cost quartile worldwide and obviously with a year and a half payout <laughs> in the top decile in terms of return on capital employed. So the coal equities continue to be mispriced. Uh, the big uh, multinational oil and gas companies also continue to be grievously mispriced. The big thinkers in the world will tell you that peak oil demand occurs in 2032. This is wishful thinking. Peak oil demand occurs in 2060 or 2065 and then tapers off for 40 years. Oil and gas is an investable theme for your lifetime, not just mine. And it's priced as though the assets have a terminal value in 2030 or 2032. This is just fake. Meanwhile, on a global basis, because many oil businesses are state controlled and access to capital is partly government controlled. The industry is under investing a billion US dollars a day in sustaining capital. By doing that, they're impairing their ability to produce two years from now or three years from now, ironically, subsidizing the very industry that the big thinkers want to get rid of. Uh, and despite it being underinvested, uh, I think these companies still recognize that the best use of their capital is to buy back their own stock instead. So, well, you know, some, <laughs> of, some, of, some of the companies, ExxonMobil would be an example, uh, allocate capital to maintain their production and increase their production, even while they are able to reward their shareholders generously by increasing dividends uh, and buying back stock. As you suggest, some of the companies that don't have the financial heft of ExxonMobil, the ones that don't have, as an example, refining and marketing uh, operations to smooth out the vagaries in upstream production, the Canadian companies come to mind, uh, are returning capital to investors much more aggressively, uh, in effect cannibalizing their ability to generate free cash six or seven years from now. But that very cannibalization uh, in, in increases the attractiveness of companies that are able to reinvest sufficiently in sustaining capital uh, and new project capital to maintain their production because believe me, the demand will be there. Rick, I'm, I'm keen to go even, even deeper on that. How does it sort of look in 10 years when you have all these sort of legacy energy companies and with 
financing shut off for, for the majority of them, does it just end up being a bunch of major, major players like ExxonMobil getting even bigger because the other ones no. can't? Or how does it sort of? Well, in the, in the US, this is an unabashed commercial. Remember, I'm starting a new bank. <laughs> if you're a US family-controlled oil and gas firm uh, and the big banks won't talk to you, <laughs> come talk to me. Uh, there will be sources of capital. You got, a, you got a discount card you want to plug on here, Rick? You got to <laughs> clip the ticket for you. <laughs> That'll come later. That'll come later. But believe me, I'll be back. Uh, I'm unabashedly commercial. I'm, I'm keen to talk about um, optionality in resources Rick? investing, Rick. And I know it's something yep. you've spoken to before, uh, and particularly as it as it plays to you know investing in projects um often companies that have an undeveloped project and it requires an incentive price higher than where commodities are today what are you looking for in the dynamic of of management and also the project when you're when you're speculating in these uh high optionality plays well first of all you have to have a commodity that's out of favor i made a lot of money in optionality in uh I, i mean a lot by my standards you know no no threat to gates or buffett but by my standards i made a lot of money in 89, 90, 91, when the outlook for lousy, uh, you know, the US dollar was in its ascendancy. Uh, nobody had any fear in the economy. So the outlook for gold and, price, gold and silver pricing was very weak, uh, ironically, when the stuff itself was very cheap. But you could, in those days, buy deposits that were pretty far out of the money that were ginormous deposits. And you could buy them for fractions of what had been spent delineating the reserve. In your country, we bought uh, Mount Todd, which was, if my memory serves me well, a seven and a half million ounce deposit that had had $400 million spent on it. And if my memory serves me well, we spent three and a half million dollars buying that deposit. I think it's still undeveloped in the Northern Territory, if I'm not wrong. Yeah, it is. It's It's still undeveloped. Yeah. We bought uh, we bought a silver deposit at Mudgee uh, in New South Wales, uh, and I think that had seventy million ounces delineated, and I think we paid three million dollars for that. So the key to making optionality work for you is to have an industry that was in favor, that had a lot of money spent on it, and then fell out of favor. So that you could buy the successful efforts from the prior exploration boom at pennies on the dollar, which we were able to do. Because of the success that some of us enjoyed in optionality in the early 90s, the uh, price tag on out-of-the-money assets came to be much higher. The chief optionality play in North America now uh, is uh, probably Seabridge, uh, admittedly a uh, hundred million ounce uh, gold deposit, but the market cap's a B. You know, it's a billion dollars. Uh, I'm not trying to say that if the gold price goes to twenty five hundred, that it won't do stupidly well. But we were able to build companies like in those days Seabridge, like Vista like Pan American Silver, like Silver Standard, um, we were able to pick up deposits for 3 or 4% of what had been spent delineating them. And that opportunity doesn't exist anymore, uh, except again, perhaps in coal. Your, your decade-long journey with uh, Sprott, Rick, Podium moments. Yeah. What were some of the highlights of that? We won't go through the – we could go through the whole 10 years, but the standout sort of investments that you went through there, your funnest parts well, of the time there. One standout was actually getting to sit next to and work with and fight with uh, Eric Sprott, who was a truly unique human being. I mean, talk about a guy with nerves, uh, a, a guy who was willing to lose – large amounts of money for long periods of time in search of making really, really, really outsized gains. Uh, Eric was just, uh, first of all, a kind and brilliant, but uh, unique 
human being. Uh, and I would say that that was the first thing that stands out. The second thing that stands out was our determination that we could build a physically derived exchange traded products, our gold trust, our silver trust, our platinum and palladium trust, all those things, exchange traded trusts, which stay trade on major, major stock exchanges, uh, that we could build those products uh, and introduce them to the market successfully during a period of time when the outlook for those products was somewhat clouded. Uh, we worked very, very, very hard uh, explaining those products, which were and are superior products for taxpaying U.S. investors. And we went from zero AUM to 20 billion AUM. <laughs> we went from having no investors in those products to having 250,000 investors in those products. And while it was a ferocious amount of work, I mean, I had hair at the beginning of the process. Uh, <laughs> and it was probably black. It was so also... It was also an awful lot of fun establishing a market category and building what really was and is a very large and vibrant and stable investor community around an asset class. And I would say that that was the most fun part of Sprott, building, helping build, I, I didn't build it, but helping build the physicals franchise for Sprott. And by the way, uh, introducing literally thousands of people. In fact, tens of thousands of people to uh, the gold and silver narrative, explaining to people why uh, gold and silver should be part of their portfolio. And then, to, what about the Sprott Uranium Trust that's popped up now? Can you tell us a bit about that? We, talk, we spoke about sure. it the other week, but um, in a little uranium yeah. thing, what what how, what play is that going to have? Well, it already has. You know, uh, you know, I. I used to joke for a while that the uh, the spot market was really the sprot market. Um, <laughs> we took over that product. Uh, it, it had been called Uranium Participation Corp. And it was actually the brainchild of the former Sprott CEO, Peter Groskoff, who did it uh, with the Lundines and others earlier on. But that product sort of lost its way. And we had the idea two years before we were able to effectuate it that we could buy control of Uranium Participation Corp. And then we could introduce the uranium thesis to the investors that we had already introduced to gold and silver, that they were not dissimilar communities. Uh, and the story was the same, except better. And when we were finally able to do it, I mean, ironically, had we been able to do it two years before, the launch would have been slower. Uh, but we were able accidentally to time that purchase really, truly, spectacularly well. And we were able to introduce a product to the market that the market really needed. We were able to buy and store uranium in all four major markets that the uranium business exists in and uh, affect delivery. If somebody wanted uh, 100,000 pounds in France, there might be a two and a half dollar premium in France to that hundred thousand pounds in Canada. And so we were able to buy in the cheap markets and sell in the dear markets uh, and offset some of the management fees in the trust, which were a wonderful thing. But also because we had an at the market facility uh, on the New York Stock Exchange, when new money came into the trust at any premium at all to net asset value, we were able to raise new money and buy more pounds. And us buying more pounds uh, put some stability in the market, which increased interest in the product, <laughs> gave us more money to buy more pounds. I mean, it was a virtuous circle. We had days where 50 million US dollars came into the vehicle. That's in a day. And we didn't have to pay the underwriter's fees. Uh, we didn't have to go on 100 city you know, dog and pony shows, talking to disinterested institutional investors. We didn't have to do any of that. We just had to go very, very, very public with the narrative uh, and build a constituency uh, around uranium. And we were able, I don't know what the corpus of that fund is now, but I suspect it's 55 million pounds. 
Yeah, wow. Because um, is there any parallels you can draw or comparisons between, I guess, what Sprott does now and I guess what Glencore used to be before they Glencore were running mines, they were a commodity trader. Are there any sim- similarities there? No, because Sprott weren't primarily traders. We didn't trade that uranium inventory. We took advantage of regional discrepancies in price. And by the way, really helped the industry by doing that. Uh, we didn't make money every time. As an example, Cameco asks you to do something. Sometimes you just do it because <laughs> mm. they are who they are. Uh, but no, the, the Glencore guys uh, are, are very different. There were some aspects of what we did in our lending business that were similar to what Glencore did. We uh, provided a source of financing for mining companies that weren't made, that had to borrow project finance. Uh, after the Basel II bank accords changed the ways that the Macquaries and the ANZs of the world uh, could uh, finance non-investment grade companies, a whole group of uh, other financial sources, uh, including Sprott, came in the market. Glencore did too. And we came to look at the whole capital stack. Uh, We would, in the right circumstances, either alone or in syndicate, uh, provide the project facility. We would also, on occasion, provide subordinated debt. We would provide equity. Uh, we would buy uh, and then resell offtake uh, or streams or royalties. Uh, Glencore did all of those things too, uh, of which the offtake they did substantially better than us. <laughs> uh, others, uh, the uh, project finance, we did substantially better than them. But in that sense, we were a little like Glencore. But Glencore's core business, uh, Traficura's core business, if you will, uh, had really been uh, commodities brokerage. And we didn't do that. Now, the the Aussie mining industry, Rick, when you're, I guess, when you're at Sprott, how much, yep. I guess, did you pay, like, get involved in it? pay attention how much attention did the aussie mining industry take compared to i guess you know the tsx all the, all the rest around the world did it play much of a part or and does yeah, it still a play a part these days with your investments a, a ton i was probably the most aggressive in australia of any of the sprout partners but uh you know as an example uh your fosterville mine uh kirkland and uh, now uh, you know, Agnico, uh, that was really funded by Eric Sprott. <laughs> oh, really? Well, and how'd, how'd that yeah, work? The, he, uh, he, uh, wonderful Aussie trained geo, uh, Nicole Edshed Bell, Nikki Bell to us, uh, no longer in Australia, in Vancouver. I remember we asked her at a board meeting once what she thought, uh, the best opportunities in the world were for exploration. And she said, drilling under the Victoria Goldfields, the Aussies don't seem to have a rig which reaches below 300 meters. Uh, and those deposits would seem to go to Hades. And, it, you know, we looked at Bendigo uh, and frankly couldn't get control of it. Uh, but we looked at Fosterville and Eric was so enamored of Fosterville. And I think like the first $70 million after the alligator collapse was Eric's. Eric's and ours, but mostly Eric's. So, uh, and, you know, if you go farther back, before I went with Sprott, uh, my single greatest success uh, in the exploration business uh, had been Paladin. Uh, I found Paladin at uh, Diggers and Dealers, sort of between skimpies. (laughs) Oh, they're trying to minimize their involvement now at Diggers. Yeah, I know. Isn't that a pity? Uh, Anyway... (laughs) You know, I, I found that in 1998 and was immediately enamored with John Borshoff. Um And I, uh, I I thought I was a genius. I financed it at a dime. <laughs> and in nine months, it fell to a penny. Uh, you know, you have, have to kind of reassess things if you're off by 90%. And I did reassess them. And I decided I was right and the market was wrong, mercifully. Because the stock cleared from a penny. I didn't buy any of the penny, sadly. But I did it a penny and a half. Uh, it cleared from a penny and a half to 10 bucks. Wow. Uh, and I I felt a fondness for Australia after that for some reason. Uh, but the truth is, if you're going to, if you're going to invest in an advanced economy in mining, 
the best in the world is Australia. Uh, mining still contributes a greater percent to your GDP than you know any Western developed country with the rule of law. Uh, however misguided some of your politicians are, uh, they aren't as misguided as American politicians because the electorate won't allow them to be, with maybe the exception of Queensland. Oh, God, I find um, it hard to believe there's some units over here. Oh, listen, come over here. I'll, I'll introduce <laughs> you to some real winners. Um, you have uh, a wonderful um, mining labor force. I'm not trying to say they aren't fractious, uh, but a wonderful mining labor force. You have great infrastructure. You have regulators who, while they can be jerks, uh, know what the words mean. Uh, you know, you submit a prospectus in the United States around mining, uh, and you get back objections to the prospectus, which clearly show that some of the regulators don't know what the words mean. Um, maybe in Australia they know them all too well, but they do know what they mean. And Australia has a wonderful human and geological endowment. So if you are going to be a mining investor, um, you're going to invest in Australia. Rick, on the theme of jurisdictions, resource nationalism is something we've spoken about more and more. I think Chile comes to mind. You've obviously seen this before. It sort of seems to happen in waves. Is it any different? And is it is it anything other than a sort of bullish sign for, for commodities longer term as sort of, you know, it sort of implies commodity uh, supply might come off? Well, I, I mean, that's a guarantee. Uh, you know, governments can't educate the kids. They can't deliver the mail. Uh, all they can do is steal and wreck things. So that's what they exist to do. Uh, obviously, if a government gets, gets in control of a mine, it finds a way to wreck it. I mean, look at Venezuela, second biggest oil reserves in the world, and they've obliterated their domestic oil industry. Um, if you look at what Congo was able to do in the copper business, I mean, it took a real, real, real genius to screw up 4% copper. Uh, but the Congolese managed to do it. They bankrupted ZCCM across the border in Zambia. Um, it takes real skill to blow resource industries as bad as the government does. Uh, the one thing that makes me nervous is governments are usually so stupid that they only steal at market tops. And the fact that you're seeing resource, mark, uh, resource uh, nationalism around the world, the fact that the governments are coming to steal resources, um, might signal to me that we're going to face a recession uh, because I, you know, I, this isn't all joking. Um, governments exist to steal, but they're not really very forward thinking. They don't steal resources when they're cheap. They steal resources when they're dear. They become covetous when the price action in the commodity has been such that they've gotten, you know, they've gotten price response to justify the narrative. The government doesn't see a boom in lithium until the boom in lithium has already occurred. They don't steal lithium at the bottom. They steal lithium at the top. So the one thing that does make me nervous about the resurgence of resource nationalism is the stupidity of the buyer. Now, that on that Congo, AVZ, Rick, how do you reckon that's going to play out? Yeah, Congo's complex. Um, how do I say this politely? Um, I wonder if I can say it politely. You seem to still need to do business in Congo in a way that understands the needs of their political elites. I think I, I, think I know what that means. <laughs> well, you know what that means. What that means is that if you're Chinese uh, and you have access to the resources of the Chinese state, uh, you can accommodate the needs of the elites. If you're governed by Foreign Anti-Corrupt Practices Act, uh, you have less ability. And the needs of the elites aren't always backhanders. Uh, if you are the government of China and you uh, provide funding for the Congo government so that every minister gets a white Land Rover, uh, and they build a $70 million parliament. That's not necessarily the same as a backhander, but it seems to be more accommodating of local needs than the Americans, the Canadians, and the Australians are capable of providing, particularly if they're private companies. The 
the demarcation line between the Chinese overseas investment and the Chinese state is somewhat more blurry than it would be for HP or Rio or people like that. I think you've, uh, I can see how you've probably evolved over the years, Rick, and how you can uh, diplomatically articulate these views. I reckon that well, was, you know, uh, I reckon I used you nailed to, I, that. I used to be pretty straightforward. And then, you know, I used to have to go to raise money from these people uh, or else do business with them. And I had to learn to be somewhat more politic in my responses. <laughs> I'm keen to get your diplomatic view, Rick, on, um, on, on management fees for uh, exploration juniors. Clearly, you've been reading my stuff already. Um, you, you know, we had, a, <laughs> we had a we had a young intern uh, who worked for us about twenty years ago. Intern is finance speak for slave. You know, <laughs> a, a very competent young person who needed working for you on the resume. We needed a, a we need a couple of them too. If you know, <laughs> willing to do it very cheaply. Yeah. So we had one of these people, and uh, really bright guy. And I, frankly, I couldn't keep him busy. And I said, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, uh, this is a lesson for you. I want you to pull 25 Toronto Stock Exchange juniors at random. And I want you to pull five yearlies, balance sheet, income statements. Actually, I was just looking the way that, see this young guy's mind works. I didn't really have an assignment in mind. And he said, so what are you looking for? And I, <laughs> I lied a little and said, uh, that's for you to find out. I wasn't really looking for anything. I just wanted to see the way this young man's mind works. And he called me back in about 10 days and he says, okay, I got it. And given that I didn't know what it was, I was interested in finding out what it was. He said the um, average of 25 companies spent 62% of capital raised on GNA and 38% went in the ground. Wow. <laughs> and that was much more stark than I had thought it would be. Uh, I know that if I had originated an exploration project, and I brought it to BHP or I brought it to tech or somebody like that, they might give me 12 to 15% of project expenditures for GNA. Uh, and, and here, a random sample of 25 juniors, albeit not a, statistic, not a statistically significant sample, uh, had 62% of capital raised going to GNA. And that was horrifying to me. Uh, and as I began to discipline myself more, which I should have done earlier, uh, to look at general administrative expenses uh, as, a, as a percentage of total expenditures, um, I got more and more horrified. And from there, uh, beginning about 15 years ago, I started paying attention to uh, the severance or change of control benefits. If you're buying a company because you believe they'll enjoy successful efforts and then they'll sell the company, some of the change of control packages that these managements have installed for themselves are truly horrendous. There was, a, again, a Canadian company, which was sold last year, where 40% of the total compensation went to departing managers and 60% went to the shareholders. Yet this departing management team owned 3% of the company. There is another company, and I won't name them. <laughs> I'm, not evil. I'm not eager for a libel suit, even if I win it. Uh, there's another company that I know where the management team owns three or 4% of the company. And uh, if the company is sold, they get five times their average annual cons uh, consideration in terms of salary and bonus uh, by way of a severance benefit. So these guys actually have an incentive to see the share price go down so that they can affect the transfer. Mm -hmm. I, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds familiar, guys. I think we've spoken about something pretty pretty recently. Rick, how does that then tie in with how you look at management teams? Well, Merce, uh, and I, I hate to keep making fun of myself for being old, but it is relevant. Um, I've been through a lot of management teams in my life, uh, and, and I've learned in movie parlance to know a lot about the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh I have guys uh, that I finance consistently, Bob Quartermain, Ross Beatty, the now third generation of Lundines, uh, who are smart, hardworking, and honest. And, and I don't have any fear of missing out anymore, right? Like, you know, some broker calls me up and feeds me a bunch of BS about XYZ and, you know, 
how there's this deposit and how a hundred years ago, if the mule hadn't died, this guy'd be rich and all this, you know, I don't care about it anymore. I don't care about missing out. If uh, a deal comes to me that has a good provenance, uh, which is to say somebody who I've made money with in the past or somebody that's recommended to me by somebody who's made me money in the past, I'm inclined to listen. Uh, there's a whole other class of financiers and promoters familiar with too. Uh, and if those guys tried to sell me a thousand bucks for 750, I'd still say no. You know, there'd be something wrong <laughs> with that thousand they were trying to sell me. But people who don't have the same experience I do can simply resort to common sense. Uh, look at the proxy statement. Uh, look at the insider statement. Find out how much stock they own and what they paid for it. If they paid enough that their average annual compensation is, say, 20 or 25% or less of the value of the stock they own, they're working to make the stock go up. If, by contrast, the value of their annual compensation uh, exceeds the money that they have invested in the stock, they are partners of yours. <laughs> you know, it, 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 uh, Warren Buffett's partner, Charlie Munger, once said, if you show me the incentives, I'll tell you the outcome. <laughs> and I think that has to do with grading managements. You know, I don't know how many earth scientists there are in the world, but let's just say for sake of argument that there's a quarter million of them. And I don't know how many operating lines there are, probably 5,000. So let's divide 5,000 by a quarter million and figure out how many of these earth scientists have been part of finding a mine, right? Pretty hard statistic. And then you find people who've been part of uh, teams or led teams that have found 11 or 12. So performance in any subject does not conformably align. There are performance dispersal curves, and the performance dispersal curves are very, very, very steep. You will have heard the colloquialism, the 80-20 rule, which suggests that 20% of a population generates 80% of the work in any given activity. Two things that are interesting about that statistic. The first is it's a bell-shaped curve. So you got a good 20 that do 80% of the work, and you got a bad 20 that generate 80% of the aggravation. So your first job is to hang out with the good 20 and avoid the bad 20. But what's really cool is that the same performance dispersal curve that identified the good 20 conformably aligns again, which means that if you put that good 20% through the same performance dispersal curve, it conformably aligns, meaning that 20% of the 20 or 4% of the population does 80% of the 80. or 4% of the population generates 64.5% of the utility. So a lot of your job as an investor is to find that second standard deviation of entrepreneur and hang out with them through thick and thin. It's important, too, not just to identify success, but to identify relevant success. Let's say that somebody comes to you and says, I have been a success at operating uh, a gold mine in Archean terrain in English-speaking West Australia. Okay, you know, and they were a demonstrated success. They operated the mine well and, you know, didn't kill anybody and had good outcomes and all that kind of stuff. But what they're doing today is looking for, exploring, rather than operating, uh, for copper gold porphyries in 15 million year old recent volcanics in the Spanish-speaking Peruvian Altiplano, the success that they enjoyed in Western Australia is not very reflective of what success that they might enjoy uh, looking for copper gold deposits in the Peruvian highlands. So it isn't enough merely to identify success. You have to enjoy you you have to uh, look at relevant success. There are people like uh, Ian Haggerty in Australia that have financed a bunch of different kinds of companies. But when you ask Ian, okay, you chose this person to be CEO of this company. 
Why? What you'll see is that although he didn't have specific success, he did have success in hiring people who were appropriate to the task at hand. Much like the Lundines, who've now had maybe 20 starts uh, and 17 successful finishes, or Ross Beattie, who had 14 starts and 13 successful finishes. Uh, these are people, although they don't have the expertise themselves to do everything that they cause to happen within their groups, they have a wonderful ability to construct boards that have expertise that's completely relevant to the task at hand. And that's really important. I guess, Rick, let's finish off on some lingo. We'll translate some Aussie terms in the finance world into some North American ones. Think of yourself a triangular stock graph that you sometimes uh, commonly see in the exploration front, the the rapid rise followed by the abysmal decline. We call it pumping. Uh, Uh Cronies involved. What do do the North Americans refer to this sort of behaviour? uh, ironically, just like we, you know, we spell and pronounce beer the same, uh, pumping <laughs> does it well. I mean, you could be polite and call it excitement, uh, but some <laughs> of that excitement obviously is generated. <laughs> Very good, mate. Now, well, boys, you got anything else? Rick, there's one more thing I wanted to raise. You've got a upcoming natural resource symposium with some of the sort of aforementioned, you know, renowned people in the resource industry speaking and so on. We're going to chuck a link in the show notes, but why don't you just tell the listeners a bit about what you got going on, who's speaking and the like. I thought you'd never get around to asking me that. (laughs) (laughs) We'll chuck it at the front, Mike. Uh, For 20-something years, uh, I've put on an investment conference. So first of all, it stood the test of time. Uh, We've done it for a very long time. I humbly suggest that it's the, the best high net worth retail natural resources investment conference on the planet. It may be the only one, too, but we'll leave that aside. Uh, Why has it worked? Uh, First of all, I think we do a good job putting together paradigm, uh, putting together global macro that you guys wouldn't see on ABC. Um, Jim Rickards, Daniela DiMartino Booth, Doug Casey, Bill Bonner, people who see the world from a libertarian uh, and contrarian-oriented viewpoint, uh, people who, before the recent run-up, could spell gold. Uh, If you agree with that viewpoint, which I think you have to, to be a natural resources or precious metals investor, uh, we have analysts and portfolio managers who we followed and known for 20, 30, 40 years, people who, in fact, could spell lithium eight years ago. Uh, people who have been successful in natural resource markets through bull market and bear market, people, you know, really who have stood the test of time. Much more importantly, I think, the analysts won't like to hear this, but much more importantly, we have a group that we call the living legends. These are entrepreneurs who built multi-billion dollar mining and oil and gas companies, public companies from scratch. Uh, And they tell you the real truth. the lessons that they have learned have invariably made them better investors and can make you a better investor too. Uh, I particularly like asking these living legends to tell me three stocks in their portfolios that they don't run, uh, other people's companies that they've invested in, and why. Uh, I think that by itself is worth the price of admission. Uh, Unlike every other investment conference I know, uh, we consider our exhibitors to be content. For most investment conferences, exhibitors uh, are graded by whether they have a pulse uh, and whether their check cash is in reverse order of importance. For us, the public company exhibitors have to be owned in accounts managed by and or owned by the conference sponsors. Sadly, there's no guarantee that every stock I buy goes up, but there is a guarantee that I have vetted the company well enough (laughs) that I'm willing to own it. Uh, unlike every other investment conference I know, I dare you to find an investment conference where every public company is owned by the people who put on the conference. I, I say that because you won't find one. Uh, finally, this, uh, whether you attend the conference uh, physically, it'll be tough now, I know, from Australia to get to Port Lauderdale, or pardon me, Boca, Boca Raton, Florida in three days. But we also have a virtual option. We live stream the conference. 
uh, we pack 52 or 54 hours of programming into four days. And what's important is that you have the uh, the ability to review the conference tapes at your leisure, at your home, for six months after the conference. And most importantly, like every investment product I've ever marketed, if you aren't 100% satisfied with the product, I'll give you your money back, which is to say the financial risk is mine. Uh, say, Rick, I didn't get my money's worth. Email me. I'll send you the money's back. No questions asked. With the caveat, I would prefer that you told me what I did wrong so I can make next year's conference better. But that's my preference. Uh, I think the money back guarantee goes a long way to helping people understand the effort that goes into this product. I'm proud to say that in 22 or 23 years of offering money back guarantees, we've probably refunded one tenth of 1% of the tuitions that we've charged, but that guarantee is there. Beautiful. Love it, Rick. We'll make sure to chuck the the tickets uh, and links in the show notes. And we really, really appreciate your, your generous amount of time with the Money Miners this morning. Thank you. Good on you, mate. Pleasure. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Rick. Good Rick. Thank you. The information contained in this episode of Money of Mine is of general nature only and does not take into account the objectives, financial situation or needs of any particular person. Before making any investment decision, you should consult with your financial advisor and consider how appropriate the advice is to your objectives, financial situation and needs.